Well, good morning. My name is David. I'm the liturgist here at the church, but this morning it's my pleasure to deliver the message with you. As uh, Pastor Peter mentioned, we're moving along in the book of John. We're moving into a new chapter, chapter 8, and that's what we'll be preaching on today. Uh, I'd like to begin by reading this story. It's a very famous story, but uh, before we do, uh, I'll be asking uh, or inviting you to read it along on the screen or in the text. And you might see in your Bible a little footnote on this story that says uh, that it was not found in the original manuscripts of the Bible. Well, I've been looking through commentaries as I've been preparing, and there is actually a lot of doubt among theologians if this is where this story belongs in the book of John. Uh, But the good news is that all the ones I read are pretty much in consensus that it is an authentic story of the ministry of Jesus. They're just a little doubtful of whether or not it should be in this part of the book. So that's all that matters to us. Uh, We care that Jesus did it. It doesn't quite matter uh, what order it's in. Uh, So I invite you to read along with me. We're going to start in John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11. Uh, And here we go. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Well, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Well, this is a very famous story. Many of you have probably heard it before, or at least heard that saying of Jesus, let he who is out the, without sin be the first to cast a stone. Uh, but when we read it in uh, context, it's a pretty risky move. If you consider this, you know, the, what the stakes are, uh, here's this woman accused of adultery, these men Sometimes I picture them with stones in hand. The possible site of an execution. This woman's life uh, is in danger. Jesus is in danger. This was all set up as a trap. Uh, These Pharisees said, well, if we get him to uh, go along with this, then we can turn him over to the Romans for being part of an unlicensed execution. if we get him to say no, then we have him in conflict with the law. We have him in a corner. Uh, but Jesus is pretty smart, is what we find out from this. Uh, but it still seems risky when he goes, okay, go ahead. He calls their bluff. But of course we have this qualification. Let any of you who is out sin 
be the first to throw a stone at her. And when we think about what he added there, we see that this risky move was actually a fairly safe bet because Jesus knows a couple things about people. One thing he knows about humans is that we are sinners, is that we are sinful. So when he said, any of you who are sinless can do it, he knew that no one was going to be able to miss that qualification. He also knows another another thing that has to work for this to work. He knows that we know that we're sinful. If there is someone in that group that said, oh, not me, I've been doing it all right, then this wouldn't have worked. But he knows that we're all aware of our sinfulness, especially at the deep level. And there's something that I think Jesus' actions here reveal about a certain way that sin works. You see, when these Pharisees come, they are focused on sin, the sin of that woman. Possibly they might think the sin of Jesus, they think he's been breaking the rules. But he turns it around and confronts them with their own sin. And at that moment, it's easy to picture, it seems to be there, a little space in the text for a moment of introspection with these Pharisees. And one by one, they drop their stones and they leave. And this pattern that we see is that the recognition, the understanding of ourselves as sinners causes us to lose the power to condemn sin in others. That when we recognize our own sinful state and come to terms with it, we no longer condemn others. And what that does is it shows that the understanding of our sinfulness, instead of just being a road to shame, can create space, like it does in this story, for mercy. Because once those people recognize their own sin, then Jesus could get to work. And what does Jesus do? Well, we know that he forgives, that he saves. And so this is a pretty wonderful message in this story. Uh, And when I was preparing for it, it reminded me of something that I had read before, of a book that I had read before. Uh, And, uh, you know, I like to bring literature and stuff up here because, as many of you know, I teach literature as a high school teacher. But this book is a very special book to me. I'd say it's probably the most influential book in my life. I, you know, second to the Bible, I can trace it's influenced back to why I'm up here today, to why I am an English teacher, why I studied literature. And it all goes back to when I was about 20 years old. So when I was about 20 years old, I was in something of what you might call a wilderness, uh, especially when it came to my faith. Uh, uh, I grew up in the church, but at this point in my life, I wasn't really going to church. I believed in Jesus, but uh, I wouldn't say necessary, necessarily that my lifestyle would have suggested that to anybody watching. Uh, I cared about rock and roll uh, and playing in rock and roll bands. And uh, I had also just grown distant. Uh, you know, I was in these strange punk rock bands and 
looking back at the more conservative Orange County evangelicalism that uh, was the culture of faith where I came from, I just didn't feel like it had space for me. Uh, and so one day, uh, I don't know why, me and one of my bandmates were talking, and we started talking about books, and we said, hey, we're pretty smart. Uh, <laughs> we should uh, you know, explore ourselves not only as musicians, but as intellectuals. Uh, and we said, yeah, that would be good. You know, what would show off to everybody that we are intellectuals? We said, well, we should pick a book that seems really hard and read it, and then everybody will know. Uh, so uh, we said, that's a good idea, because that's all you have to do. Uh, and uh, we arbitrarily picked a book uh, called The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, I don't know why we picked that book. I think it was because we thought the name Fyodor Dostoevsky was about as Im impressive as you could get. We're like, if we read that book, and we found it, and it's long. In fact, here it is. This is the copy I read when I was 20. It's about 800 pages long. It's from 19th century Russia. And we said, if we read that, then everybody will know we're smart. Uh, and so uh, we made a bet, let's read this together. Uh, and uh, we did. And uh, I, I'm sorry to say, I think within the first 50 pages or so, my friend lost interest and put it back on the shelf and he never read it. But I was transfixed by this book. As I said, I was this young man wandering, trying to find my place between the faith of my youth and my connection to the secular world. And I started reading this book that centers around this character, Alexei Karamazov, who is a novice monk, a monk in training, uh, who is trying to dedicate his life uh, to the church, uh, yet he's struggling with his connection to the outside world and his place there, and all of a sudden I felt this great kinship with this character. And not only that, it was this exotic locale of Eastern Orthodox Russia uh, in the 19th century, and so it was completely removed from the uh, faith traditions I had grown up with, so it became exciting again. Uh, and so it hooked me, but then eventually I got to some parts that had significant effect on me. And that's what I want to share with you because it seems to me to be sim uh, sharing a similar message to what we're getting in the book of John here. So I have to set up a little bit of context. Uh, this character, Alexei Karamazov, the monk in training, has a m mentor, an elder monk, and his name is Zosima. And he becomes kind of the moral voice of the book. Uh, he is this saintly figure. He's actually based off of a figure that Dostoevsky knew in real life that was a huge influence on him. And some of what he shares about his own faith journey uh, becomes some of the most powerful messages in the book. And uh, he shares his biography in a section of the book. There's plenty of room to do that. I think I showed you how long that book is. Uh, I read that whole thing. Uh, so, uh, and uh, when he's uh, talking, he says that the most transformative uh, influence in his life, this is Zosima, uh, was his brother. He had a brother who, uh, as a young man, was a fairly rude individual, uh, was rude to his parents, he scoffed at church, uh, and uh, was mean to their servants, all until he got uh, a fatal illness. And when he was sick, 
all of a sudden we have this story of this transformation as if God came and changed his heart. And then he becomes this saint-like figure in the book that starts sharing these revelations. And I'd like to read that part to you, part at least a couple sections, because this is what my struggling 20-year-old heart uh, all of a sudden was uh, filled with inspiration when I read this. Uh, And so Zosima's brother is laying in bed ill, and it says, and I'm quoting from the book now, when the servants came in, he told them time and again, my beloved, my dear ones, why do you serve me? Am I worthy of being served? If God were to have mercy on me and let me live, I would begin serving you, for we must all serve each other. Is it not possible for there to be no masters and servants? But let me also be the servant of my servants, the same as they are to me. And I shall tell you, dear mother, that each of us is guilty in everything before everyone, and I most of all. We'll start to hear that message, and that's what I started to pick up on. Each of us is guilty in everything before everyone. At that, mother even smiled. She wept and smiled. How can it be, she said, that you are the most guilty before everyone? There are murderers and robbers. And how have you managed to sin so that you should accuse yourself most of all? Dear mother, heart of my heart, my joyful one, you must know that verily each of us is guilty before everyone, for everyone and everything. I do not know how to explain it to you, but I feel it so strongly that it pains me. You take too many sins upon yourself, mother used to weep. Dear mother, my joy, I am weeping from gladness, not from grief. I want to be guilty before them, only I cannot explain it to you, for I do not even know how to love them. Let me be sinful before everyone, but so that everyone will forgive me, and that is paradise. Am I not in paradise now? And so that strange idea of the awareness of one's sins before everyone was something that started to sink into me. And it ends up being a big motivator to this character, uh, Zosima, when later in his life it says that question that his brother asked was transformative. It says, that question pierced my mind for the first time in my life. Mother, heart of my heart, truly each of us is guilty before everyone and for everyone. Only people do not know it. And if they knew it, the world would at once become paradise. Now, as in a lot of great philosophical literature, these types of ideas sound really, really uh, important, and then you try to figure them out and realize you're confused a little bit. Uh, And that's how I was. I'm like, but this seems to be reverberating, and I was thinking about why this had such an impact on me when I was this age, and I realized that somehow, throughout my life, for whatever had happened, aspects of my own faith had created shame in me whenever I thought of my own sinfulness. That even if I repented earnestly, Christianity and shame were linked. That I was revealed as a sinner. But all of a sudden, there was a new way of looking at this when I read this book, that the acknowledgement of my own sinfulness was not something that had to lead to shame, but could instead 
through the acknowledgement and repentance of sin, actually pave the way to freedom. And ultimately, in the words of Zosima's brother, paradise. It also revolutionized what I believed Christianity could do for the world. All of a sudden, I was thinking being a Christian wasn't about being blameless, about being perfect, but about knowing that you were a sinner that needed forgiveness. And allowing that knowledge, and this is what I think is central, and I think it's what the character is doing here, allowing that knowledge to make you humble. And therefore, out of that humility, born out of the awareness of our own sinfulness, we now can be merciful and charitable to all the other sinners in the world. And I still believe that a universal focus on the humility born from the knowledge of our own sinfulness and the knowledge of our state of being forgiven sinners could create a type of symbiotic webwork of mercy and compassion that if transmitted between all humans would indeed usher in, under the powerful hands of Jesus, paradise at once. If we were all guilty before each other, acting out of that humility would become a way for mercy to spread across the world. And I think we see this a bit in this story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. You see, when the Pharisees came in, they weren't focused on their own sinfulness. That wasn't a reality to them at that moment. They were focused on the sin of that woman. They were focused on what they could do to capture Jesus. But only when Jesus confronted them with their own sinfulness could they drop their stones and could mercy take place. I think it's an important message for us in the world we live in. I'm sure for all times, but I know in the modern world we live in, even if we want to be as sinless as possible, there seems to be almost an impossibility to avoid complicity in the sinfulness of the world. In this kind of modern consumerist culture, it seems like the sins of the world are sneaking up on you, no matter what you do. I think about, and this is the type of stuff I think about, uh, I think about like clothing companies that we buy our clothes for and you do some research and you find out a lot of them, major companies in America, you trace that production cycle back, you find the presence of sweatshops, child labor, things that we would of course see as evil and shun but sometimes we have bought those clothes. The materials that make up our technology, our cell phones, if you see how those materials are sourced, you can find the presence of terrible mistreatment of workers around the globe, even to the point of modern-day slavery. Stuff we would shun as evil. Have we become complicit in it? Our environment destroyed in the production of cheap goods and conveniences because this world sometimes seems soaked in sin. I remember a specific moment where I was bummed out about things like this. I walked into, yes, I, I get bummed out about it a little bit. I walked into the room and my wife was walking a docu, uh, watching a documentary on avocados. 
And I thought, that'll cheer me up, because if there's one thing I like, it's avocados. I've had students make fun of me, because they go, you're just a hipster millennial who likes avocado toast. And I said, I don't care what you say, I do like avocado toast. <laughs> I said, well, anyway, avocados are great. So I start watching this with my wife, and what do they get into? Well, all the avocados that you love come from Mexico and are generally run by drug cartels. Uh, and that bummed me out. Uh, and I started, I read, I was reading a, an interview from NPR with a, a reporter who had gone uh, in depth looking at the uh, sourcing of avocados. Uh, and her response to a question I found to be very interesting. So this, her name is Emily Green. She's a reporter. And the NPR interviewer asked her this after they find out about this connection that these deadly drug cartels are profiting off of the avocados we buy. She says this. And her answer is telling. She says, Emily, let me get you to reflect on something if we can. Should those Americans who go to groceries and want to buy poultry that is, quote, humanely slaughtered, or they go and they buy a new computer and don't want a lot of components to come from places in China where slave labor is employed, how should they feel about buying avocados? And she says this, what does it mean to live in this globalized world? It's complicated. I think we're all, every day, all the time, making these choices in what are not black and white situations. And I would say that's the case here, too. Avocados provide tens of thousands of jobs. It has single-handedly lifted the economy of the state of Machoacan. It means that tens of thousands of people do not migrate to the United States because they have jobs in Machoacan. So to say I'm going to protest the violence by not consuming avocados, I don't know that that would work. I'm not saying don't do it, but it seems a bit simplistic to me. And at the same time, it's troubling that there is so much violence around this industry and not enough attention paid to it, which is all a way of saying, I don't know the answer to that question. So this is an expert that's digging in to these sinful practices in our world, and they say, how do we solve it? And she goes, I don't know. reveals a couple things to us. One is that we do need to be aware of things and we need to try to fight against evil wherever we can. But it also reveals the deep, deep need for forgiveness that we as humans need, no matter who we are. In John, 1 John, the letter from John, chapter 1, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and truth is not in us. We're all sinful. And if that was the end of the sermon, you would have a bummed out Sunday. But of course he continues, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because although the world is soaked in sin, although we're all in need of forgiveness, that is why we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. In that story in John, that woman still stands there accused. He says, if you are without sin, 
go ahead and cast the first stone. Every Pharisee leaves, but there is one person in that group that is without sin, and that's Jesus Christ. He has the authority and the right to condemn her, but he doesn't. And what we get here is not just an interesting story of Jesus solving a problem, but a revelation of the nature of God. That the creator of the universe, present, incarnate in Jesus Christ, is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And thank God he is. John continues in 1 John, he says that Jesus will be faithful to forgive us. And he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what a wonderful message that is. That when we look at sin at the scale that we can't even fathom how we fix it, we know that Jesus' sacrifice was big enough to offer mercy to all of us. So when we read this story, of course we know we have to confront the reality of our own personal sins. We have to stop sinning. It says at the end of the story, he doesn't condemn her, but he does say, go now and leave your life of sin. But we also confront our complicity in a world of sin and realize humbly as sinners that we have been saved. And so our job now is to extend that mercy to a world in deep, deep need. So in closing, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. The band can come up. Uh, it seems fitting that with this message, we have a moment where uh, you're invited into a prayer of confession. Uh, the words will be on the screen. If you are comfortable to pray it, you can pray it out loud. We'll mention our personal sin, the way that we sin collectively as humans. I'll give you a moment to if there's anything you want to offer to Jesus, right now we'll spend a moment of silence. We'll end with an assurance of pardon, then we'll worship. So I believe we have the words on the screen. So if you're comfortable, I think it's sometimes important we read these words collectively. Then we'll bring our worries, our sins, in front of our Heavenly Father, who we know is faithful to forgive. So if you'd like, pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we bring before you our own personal sins, as well as our collective sins as humans. We know that even as a people of God, we have fallen short of holiness and have sinned against you and against our fellow man. We pray that you forgive us for the moments we have been blind, for the moments we have been careless, and for the moments we have hardened our hearts against your spirit. We pray now for your forgiveness and for your mercy. We thank you for being a faithful God of love. Give to us the presence of your Holy Spirit so that we may align our lives 
with the righteous and merciful movement of your kingdom. In the name of your holy son, Jesus. Amen. Now let's spend a moment in silence. Maybe there's something in your heart that you just want to tell Jesus about. Offer that. Remember, he is faithful to forgive. And then we'll close in just a moment. When we read those verses in John, in 1 John, he reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for forgiving us and for your mercy and love.